sitting next to someone who does. Um, Deb's going to give a small sheet of paper to each one of you because we're going to actually start in a couple of minutes with a quiz. Okay. Now, don't stress out. I actually don't expect you to know the answers to this particular quiz. You're supposed to guess. It's multiple choice. Okay. And there will be a prize tomorrow for the person who gets the most questions right over the three sessions. Uh, this prize is edible, partly. Okay. So I, I know I've immediately got some of your full attention, which may have started to lapse in the last 10 seconds before that. So when you get the piece of paper, can you please write your name very clearly on the top of it? And if there, there may be more than one person with the same Christian name, so please put both names down. And also maybe put a big number one in the top right-hand corner, uh, because there'll be three quizzes overall, and we need to um, keep the cumulative scores on that. Okay, uh, a couple of introductory comments. One, some of you might be sitting here thinking, what on earth is the point of looking back in the past? And I have to convince you to stay awake for the next three sessions. So let me just give you a very brief example. Who's seen, has anyone here ever had amnesia in the past? Can't remember. You can't remember, excellent. Um, has anyone here ever seen the Born Identity movie? Okay, so if you've seen the first of those, well, I think there's at least four of them now, but if you've seen the very first one, you'll know that he's picked up in the middle of the ocean and doesn't know who he is. And when most of us who haven't had amnesia, I have had amnesia, by the way, when most of us who haven't had amnesia think of amnesia, you think, oh, you've forgotten your memories, you've forgotten the past, and that obviously is true. But what we usually don't think, and the Born Identity movie shows this very clearly, is that when we've forgotten our past, we have automatically forgotten our present. If you remember that Jason Bourne movie, because he didn't know who he had been, he didn't know who he was in the moment. And if you don't know who you have been, and you don't know who you are in the moment, how do you plan for the future? So the first movie, of course, he has to find out who he has been, to find out who he is, to find out how he can stay alive for the next seven and a half minutes. And that's most of the movie. Uh, so my argument is this, that for us as individuals, or for us corporately as the church, we actually need to have a knowledge of our past to know who we are today. Now, I, I find very few churches who say, oh, we don't care about our current identity and we don't care about where we're going. But I find a lot of churches that don't seem to have much awareness of the importance of knowing where you've been. But where we've been, individually or corporately, intimately affects who we are today. And therefore, it affects how we plan for the future. I actually think a lot of problems in churches arise because we don't know enough about our past. Um, so that's my preamble to this. And uh, hopefully, for those of you who may have been sceptical about why on earth could we bother looking back, that might have brought me at least another 30 minutes of credibility. Now, we're going to start with a few of these quiz questions. So hopefully, you've got your piece of paper now. Thanks, Deb. And something to write with. So, as I said, multiple choice. Uh, Debs will collect these at the end of this first session. Okay, I should move. It would move if I turned it on. Okay, 
Um, now, these questions, some of them are quite funny. So you are allowed to laugh at church history because that's just laughing at our family, right? Um, all right. The Church of Rome in the 5th century divided its income four ways. A quarter went to the bishop. Which of the following did not get a quarter share? A, other clergymen. B, building maintenance. C, missions and evangelism. Or D, the sick and the poor. One of those, so there are four options here. Thanks, Nick. One of those missed out on the other three quarters of that budget. So you have to just write down a letter, A, B, C, or D, as to which one. So write question, question one, and then either A, B, C, or D, as to which one you think missed out. Okay, move along. What are catechumens? What are catechumens? Are they? A. Demons from Greek mythology that were half cattle, half human. <laughs> B. Christians who met in catacombs. C. People undergoing instruction for baptism. <laughs> or D. The candles used in the 5th century to examine a person's throat during an exorcism. You said with a straight face. I try to say with a straight face. Okay. If, I, if I laugh at an unlikely possibility, I'm helping you, you see. Which I'm not inclined to do, sorry. Um, now, a word about ascetics. Uh, ascetics were people who lived lives of self-denial, and we'll meet a few of those. Um, perhaps the most exhausting 5th century ascetic ritual was performed by a group called the Akoimatai. What did they do? Did they? A. Have to preach the gospel to a different tribe every day of the year. had to remain attached to a 40 kilogram cross at all times. C had to swim slightly over 10 kilometers a day to signify being born of the water. Or D had to sing a praise song 24 hours a day. Uh, what, oh, sorry, what does it say? Every three minutes. Every three hours around the clock, seven days a week. One more to go. In 419 AD, according to Roman law, a fugitive was safe if he could get within 16 metres of what? A, a large group of well-armed friends. B, a priest. C, the Eucharist or communion elements, if they've been consecrated. Or D, a church door. Okay, so I'd like you to finish those and then pass them along to this side of the room, please, where um, Deborah will grab them. Because 
much as I, I trust all of you, and you all look incredibly honest, I'm not going to tell you the answers until the papers are with Deborah. Okay, are all the papers in? Sorry, thinking time's over. This is supposed to be more fun than real test. If you want to know what a real test looks like, it's, it's Andre's Greek class on a Thursday morning. That's when you see people in, in real test stress. Okay. Have we got them all? If you haven't put your name on it, I'm sorry you're not going to win the prize. Oh well, sorry. <laughs> that was the first thing you were supposed to do. That was the bit I was sure you'd get right. Okay, this is, seems to be taking a bit longer than I thought it would. This is not a real test. Okay, I'm going to have to start calling out the answers, I'm afraid. All right, got them? Okay, excellent. So the first question up on the board, where, what one missed out? The answer was, in fact, C, missions and evangelism. Why? The reason was because in the 5th century, uh, Roman emperor, emperors had already converted to Christianity, and so people were being baptised as soon as they were born. So the idea was you don't need missions and evangelism, really, um, because everyone's a Christian. That idea was starting to come through. Okay, we've got a couple of colourful answers here which aren't right. Uh, the correct one, again, is it, C, people undergoing instruction for baptism. And the correct answer here is, in fact, the, the Hillsong option, uh, which is D. Um, so clearly it was a bit of a roster system going on here. And this last one was, in fact, a church door. D. Okay, got a few rumbles in the jungle now. Okay, I've already got, I've already alienated half of you, haven't I? Okay, maybe I won't do these quizzes in the future. All right, so we're going to, in this first session, look at the the early church period, and so essentially. Uh, you, you would have seen really that our questions are focused on that particular period. Okay, so the early church. So the early church period really, this is how we divide it up, broadly speaking. So you can see that the uh, the, the two periods that we are, are going to combine next, uh, the medieval and Reformation, certainly cover most of the most of that time. And uh, for most of you, the idea that modern church history starts in 1650 might seem a bit strange. Often, when I talk to my students, I say, "When do you think modern church history starts?" 
and they take one look at me, try to calculate my age, want to be polite and say, oh, maybe 1950. Okay. Uh, and they're usually shocked when they figure out that it's actually 300 years before that. Uh, and we'll see why some of those characteristics uh, that we now recognise very much as, as ours start them. But there's always a couple of questions that each generation, each era asks. What is the church and who or where is the authority? Over and over again, uh, those questions get, get asked. And when they get answered in slightly different ways, or major different ways, then that's when really the, we change an era in church history. We start getting new answers and new formulations of what the church is. So one of the things that we see happening, we see this happening in the start of the New, in the New Testament era itself, is that as the church spreads, it becomes increasingly Gentile in composition. Oh, by the way, a word on my approach. I'm going to cover a lot of material here today, and I do not expect you to remember it all. The, the model we're doing is a little bit... Many of you would have flown over the Nullarbor and perhaps had a window seat. Okay? And so in doing that, you would have at the end of your flight across the Nullarbor and your window seat on a clear day, you would have a, a good general impression of what Australia was like that passed underneath your window. But you wouldn't be able to talk about every single valley and hill and all of that. So that's our approach. I don't expect you to remember uh, a huge amount of what we're talking about, but you will get an idea of the lie of the land from 30,000 feet, as it were. And certain things, I'm hoping, will stick in your mind and they will pique other questions. Okay? So that's our approach. So I'm throwing a lot of material out here. I'm doing it quite quickly. Um, don't feel stressed if you can't remember it. I'd be amazed if you, if you did. All right. Uh, Jerusalem really ceases to become the centre of the church. The church moves out to, to other centres. And therefore what that means is the church encounters uh, an increasing diversity, and this happens again really in the 19th century, as we'll see, of languages and cultures. And it poses the big question, can Christianity adapt to those uh, changing circumstances and those diverse encounters? Now, we see in the pages of the New Testament itself that there's a period of martyrdom. We see that with, with Stephen, for example. And we know that Peter and Paul, shortly after the New Testament era, were, uh, were killed. This really kicks off with Nero in, in 64 AD, and that's when we think both Peter and Paul were killed. And it's not non-stop persecution. There's about 10 separate periods of persecution, some more localised, some more empire-wide, over the next 250 years. So it wasn't continuous. There were peaceful years. And uh, Christians, although uh, Christianity was not a legal religion, Christians did still rise to positions of influence and power in the Roman Empire in different ways. So you'll see sometimes persecution, say, is in France, but nowhere else. There's a picture of a guy we don't particularly like. All right, now, in this period of martyrdom, why were Christians martyred? And some of the reasons will surprise you. So when you see these half a dozen reasons I'm about to put up on the next slide, ask yourself, do my non-Christian neighbours think of me this way? 
Do they see you as cannibals? Do they see you as incestuous and immoral? Antisocial. Oh, I might care too much about your anti won't I? Um, do they see you as an atheist? And do they blame you for the weather and other natural disasters? These were all reasons why, surprisingly in some cases, Christians were martyred. Cannibals obviously links back to communion. We're always talking about you know, eating the body and drinking the blood. Uh, incestuous and immoral. Well, everyone's talking about loving each other and they're all talking about everyone's brothers and sisters and they have all these night meetings. Immediately suspicious. Antisocial. Well, they, for some strange reason, they don't really like turning up to the gladiatorial combat and um, seeing people be killed. And, um, you know, when they're having a feast in honour of such and such a, uh, a god, they, they tend not to turn up. So we're pretty antisocial. Uh, obviously, that flies pretty easily into anti-Rome. Atheists. What am I doing? <laughs> I'm thinking to them. I'm getting excited. Um, well, of course, we've got an invisible god. Right? Um, and you can imagine in people's minds, okay, we... You Christians say you worship this invisible God, but hang on, you're also worshiping some dead carpenter? You guys just don't have your head screwed on, you know? You don't have a real God at all, you're atheists. Um, and the natural disasters thing really links in with that, because of course if Christians aren't doing the right thing by the gods of the day, uh, then the gods of the day are going to get upset, right? So every time there's a flood, or every time there's a famine, or an earthquake, guess who gets to blame? You do. So that's a, a quick run through of why Christians weren't particularly popular and why they were persecuted or killed. When we get to 100 AD, which is certainly obviously past the, the New Testament documents, we actually start to see a couple of different models of church emerging. One of those is a model centered around the bishop. Now, the term bishop back then was really like a, a senior pastor, if you like, uh, rather than some of the understandings of, of bishop today. And uh, the other model is really a, a more of a congregational charismatic type model. Um, so you can see these in, in different writings, which I'll briefly refer to there. So one model is uh, you have, is very open to travelling prophets and teachers coming through. And the other model says, no, it's what we need to do is listen to the person who's, who's in the particular area. And this was partly because a lot of different ideas were circulating at that particular time. One of the things that happens is that when the second coming doesn't happen immediately, the church starts to shape its identity differently and it starts to move from a body that saw itself as getting ready to leave together, in a sense, to become a body that has to learn to live together. Now, because that tends to focus in communities, then that's another impetus to the stationary uh, ministry model, if you like, and, and more of an impetus to the bishop rather than the, the itinerant uh, ministers coming through. Now, here's an equation. I, in, a, in a class, I'll often talk about this for a little while, but we'll keep things moving along here. I'll often ask people, do you agree with this particular equation? And I, I've done this enough to know. Um, so... Really, the question is, basically, if you don't have uniformity and unanimity, do you lose unity? 
Um, in other words, if everyone doesn't look the same, act the same, and agree on everything, does that mean unity is dead? Now, I know, um, without any prophetic gifting here, that because you're all born up well after 1650, I think, um, that you're all going to say, actually, no, I don't think that equation holds true. Okay? Because we look around and we see diversity, a lack of uniformity, a lack of unanimity. I won't ask for a show of hands, but does everyone agree on everything all the time in your churches? Rhetorical question, possibly not. Um, but you still have essential unity. That proves you're modern. If you'd lived back then, you wouldn't have been able to think that way. And this is one of the things, I'm, I'm going to say something now that might seem insulting, and it's, it's not meant to. You are a product. You don't like thinking of ourselves as a product, perhaps. But we are a product. We're a product of historical forces that come ultimately through our culture and our families, etc. That shape who we are, that produce who we are, that really are fundamental to why we think the way we do. So people back then couldn't think like you do. Okay? So for them, if you didn't have the two things on the right-hand side of the equation, you, either one of them, you could not have the thing on the left. Okay, so we'll just skip that next bit. We've already done that. Okay, so one of the things that challenged the early church was something called Gnosticism. And this had a, a what's called a, a dualist understanding. And this is something that in, in many ways has come through the church in succeeding centuries. The idea that everything spiritual is good and everything physical is bad. Um, and that God couldn't have anything to do with matter. Therefore, it, you know, it would be a blasphemy to call God creator. Um, one of the things these guys had a bit of a handle on is that the world around us isn't the way it is isn't perfect. They saw that clearly. Okay? But their solution to that was to say, well, it can't have been created um, you know, by a good and holy God. So what they had to do, they've got a very uh, complicated system that says there's lots and lots of layers of intermediate beings, like angels if you like. Um, the most high God who's all-powerful and all-good and far too smart and wise and holy to ever create something like material creation, creates an angel who creates an angel who creates an angel. And you've got, a, in some systems, 365 layers of angels. Each succeeding angel is a little bit less holy and a little bit less smart than the one before it. And the, the, the angel at the bottom, who is dumb enough um, and unholy enough to create the world, is actually the God of the Old Testament. Um, which was said in one of the well, it's meant to shock you, so thank you for that reaction. Um, now, for them, salvation equated to knowledge. If you knew this particular system, you were in the inside. Uh, it, it led to people uh, to one extreme or the other, it often led to people who were just living completely as they wanted to. Now, with this sort of background going on, you think, well, how does the church deal with challenges like this that our people are saying in the church? So in the second century, you have a couple of colourful heresies arising that furthers the development of the idea of a bishop. Um, one guy was called Marcion, who had a Gnostic background, 
and he produced what you could think of as, as the world's first pocket Bible. So he decided, uh, well, we've got to get rid of the entire Old Testament because you know, the God there looks like he favours the Jews too much. And I can't see any, any similarity between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. They've got to be two separate gods. So you've got to choose one or the other, right? So let's ditch the God of the Old Testament. Uh, makes the book a lot easier to carry around anyway. And we'll have the God of the New Testament. But hang on, some of these books in the New Testament, they favour the Jews a bit too much as well. So we've got to get rid of a few of those. So I think in the end, he end up, ends up with Luke's Gospel without the infancy narratives and a few other epistles. Um, so the church had to respond to that. Now, the thing that's important to know at this stage is that in the second century, the New Testament canon as we know it had not been completely settled. There were still some books under debate. Uh, it doesn't get settled till about the 360s, really. Um, so imagine having to be leading a church and you've got Gnostics crawling around and Marcionites crawling around. Uh, Marcionite churches lasted for a long time, by the way. And you're happy to come up with some sort of response. Okay? Not an easy world. And then on the other hand, you have what could be seen as a charismatic challenge um, from a guy called Montanus. So Montanus, his idea was that you have three ages of revelation corresponding to the Trinity. The age of the Father, the Old Testament, the age of the Son, the New Testament era. And that is succeeded by the age of the Spirit, which of course they were now living in. Each age really supplants the one before. So the age of the Spirit, which they were then living in, supplanted the age of the Son and the age of the Father. So what the Spirit is saying now is far more important than anything that's happened before. So he was travelling around with a couple of, of prophetesses and um, things got a bit uh, weird there. So what that meant was people were saying that those two questions I played at the start, what is the church and where is the authority? And so what they were starting to do was to uh, move to giving the bishops the authority. Heresy had really uh, contributed to the need to find an authoritative force in the church. And by the time we get to a couple of hundred years after Christ, um, bishops are the ones in control of things like re uh, forgiving sins, deciding uh, when people can be readmitted to the church, etc. Um, and also the role of bishop changes really and becomes... The term, big term is monarchical bishops. In other words, they're ruling. Um, it becomes more of a senior role and other uh, ministries become subject to them. We also start to get the idea, um, this guy called Irenaeus came up with the idea of, of apostolic authority resting in the bishops. So very, uh, at this early stage they're saying, well, actually the bishops are really the people who have had their authority passed down to them uh, through an apostolic line. Now, we hit in the middle of the 3rd century a guy called Cyprian, who was pastoring during one of those periods of persecution under the Emperor Decius. And his problem was, what do we do with the people who elapse? Now, imagine a situation where your church is, is being persecuted, and it lasts for some time. Now, during that time, some people die because they are standing firm in their faith to death. Some people under torture, say, oh, I don't believe in Jesus anymore. Yeah. Other people run away and hide. This is not another one of those multiple choice questions, by the way. But you do get all those sorts of responses in times of persecution. And so you're sitting here, you've lost people to torture or to outright execution. Um, 
you know, you may have run away, whatever. The persecution comes to an end. And the next Sunday, the people who are left come back to church. And you've got, you know, one person sitting next to someone else who's there because they deny the faith, that their partner's killed. Um, you can imagine there's a few pastoral issues to deal with in those congregations. So Cyprian was one who had to deal with that. Um, he had a defined the um, very closely the church with the bishop. Um, so the idea that uh, bishops um, are the ones who control re-entrance of the church, and therefore bishops almost became equivalent to the church in some ways. So you can see a couple of quotes up there. Um, Whoever doesn't have the church as a mother no longer has God as a father. Um, the church was likened to the ark. If anyone was outside Noah's ark survived, uh, someone outside the church could be saved. Um, that sort of was the way the sort of thinking uh, was, was developing. Cyprian, though, and his era in the middle of the third century, very much had the idea that all bishops were equal. So the idea that of the Pope, the Bishop of Rome, being above all other bishops hasn't yet uh, evolved. So really we're in a situation where the bishops are effectively controlling the grace of God. A couple of pictures. We like the guy on the left, we don't like the guy on the right. <laughs> now, here's one of these great ironies. Um, everywhere I look in church history, I see irony. I can't, can't help it. If you'd been a gambling person, um, not asking for show of hands here, but if you were a gambling person around 50 years AD, obviously Jesus is, is dead, and someone said to you, how much money would you put on the bet that this Christian thing is going to last a thousand years? You would, have, you, know, you would have got fairly long odds on that, probably, because no one's going to live long enough to call the bet in, right? Um, and then if you'd added to that, who, would, who wants to bet on the fact that not only will Christianity last, but it will outlast the Roman Empire. You would have got really long odds on that. Okay? But in fact, of course, that's what happens. Um, so the irony is that through the, the Roman Emperor Constantine, who converts to Christianity, in that sense, uh, in inverted commas, Christianity defeats Rome. Uh, Christianity wins over Rome in one sense. Now, I know there's a lot of controversy about this. Um, but it, obviously, it didn't come through open warfare. Now, there are some immediate benefits from that. There's relief from persecution. There's state sponsorship of various things, um, including theology. Uh, but there were some disadvantages. Now, I'm going to put up a, a picture next to the Emperor Constantine. Okay. Now, the big question, uh, I don't know the answer to this. You know, I might have a PhD in church history, but I do not know the answer to this and many other questions, by the way. I'm not entirely sure why the Emperor Constantine looks so much like Buzz Lightyear. Okay. It's, if, if any of you have any suggestions, I'm quite happy to, uh, to hear those. Um, now, one of the things that arises here, which is, has been, as many of you would know, quite controversial for many centuries, is the church-state relationship. So, previously, really, there hadn't been one. Um, the church was persecuted, the church was illegal. But now there is one. And that really becomes uh, a major factor for the next one and a half um, millennia, really. 
So we've got an alliance now for the first time between the church and the rich and powerful. This brings up, for the first time, the risk of nominalism. The idea that you can be a Christian in name only. So previously, there was no point. Why would you be a Christian if you weren't really a Christian? Because you could be tortured or killed for it. Now, oh, actually, this could be a good career move. Yeah. Um, and so that's been perhaps something that is, uh, has been with us ever since. We also have the direct potential for state interference in church affairs, which we've seen many times in church history. One of the good things, though, for those of us who love theology is that, do you know, it's, it's tough to, in times of persecution, I imagine you, you have to develop some sort of intensely practical theology of persecution, but you don't necessarily have the, the leisure time to develop your theology in other areas. So one of the benefits of this was it initiated a period of really a few hundred years where we have some very key church councils where we hammer out exactly what we believe. First of those was the Council of Nicaea in 325. Um, Constantine convenes that particular council. And the key issue here was, you know, what do we say about Jesus? You've got all these scriptures that say he's, he's God, all these scriptures that say he's human. Is it possible he be somehow both? And you had a couple of different viewpoints being argued by guys called uh, Arius and Athanasius. And one saying that Arius said that Christ had been created, he wasn't eternal. Athanasius argued the, the contribution that you could say Christ was fully God, which of course ends up getting, uh, getting accepted as, as orthodox doctrine. The further councils, these are really important, obviously we're just you know, skating over the surface from 30,000 feet. Um, you know, Constant, Constantinople in 381. Well, if Christ is fully God, how do those na natures coexist in him? Um, does the, the divine somehow replace the human? Ephesus continued that sort of um, uh, that sort of debate, and, and Chalcedon, the last of these great early councils, uh, argued that the two natures in fact coexist in, in Christ but remain distinct. So there's obviously heaps more that could be said there, but we've got this time where the great doctrines of Christianity are being thrashed out. Okay, so, oh, incidentally, of course, yeah, I think I've just flashed through that last point there. Uh, the, those councils actually demonstrate quite clearly that there isn't unanimity amongst believers, addressing that equation we put up earlier on. Okay, so we get to the point where the church is still around and, and Rome falls. So we have got some core theology in place after 150 years. We've had state sponsorship for 150 years. And the church itself, an interesting argument, obviously the Roman Empire itself was hierarchical, the emperor at the top. Um, and so it's an interesting question, how much is the church influenced by the surrounding culture? Always a fascinating question. So I think there's an argument that the church started to, in many ways, mirror um, that, um, that pattern that was there in the empire. But, of course, if you, who, who here has watched the movie Gladiator? Okay. Opening scenes of Gladiator, I think Russell, Russell Crowe was leading a, a team against the barbarians in the woods of Germany or something like that. But the Roman Empire really always had barbarians around the edges of it. Always annoying. Um, and in the end, basically, um, Rome falls. One of the interesting things that happens is uh, this guy who, who Protestants see as the first pope, really, Leo I, um, 
there's a famous scene where Attila the Hun, who's one of the barbarians, is, is wanting to invade Rome, and really Leo negotiates, uh, wasn't a terribly successful truce, but mitigates some of the downside to being uh, attacked by barbarians, let's say, and that increased his prestige. But finally in 476, Rome falls, and really the barbarians take over, and fascinatingly, um, as one historian has said, really for the next thousand years, so from roughly 500 to 1500, the church becomes the mortar that holds Western civilization together. Barbar There's a whole lot of things barbarians aren't terribly interested in. Books and administration are sort of top of the list. Okay? So if you think about, uh, and, and we all know, you know, whatever images of the Roman Empire we've got, we know it's pretty an advanced civilization and pretty well organized. Right? So, but for the next thousand years, anything to do with health or welfare or education, the church did it. Okay, some interesting theological developments that are going through this period. Um, fairly early on, um, Mary is seen as playing a key role in God's redemptive plan. And she was seen as the opposite of Eve the antithesis of Eve. But they, people didn't start praying to her uh, until the 5th century. Um, interestingly, bringing this up to date for a second, just before the year 2000, there was a, a very strong move in Roman Catholicism um, to have Mary declared co-redeemer with Jesus. Um, and interestingly, there were, I've got the article still somewhere, Hundreds of thousands of letters going to the Vatican saying, please declare Mary co-redeemer with Jesus. This is the doctrine for the new millennium. And you had Catholicism really splitting over whether or not that was a, a good thing to do. It's gone a bit quiet on that recently. Um, the idea of Mary's perpetual virginity. Mary stays a virgin forever. Okay, I know that creates problems with the, these kids and you know brothers and sisters, and things, but we won't go there for the time being. Um, but that's something that's debated for a long period of time. Interestingly, what happens a lot in Roman Catholicism, an idea will surface very early and it will be debated for a long time and then it might be hundreds of years later it actually gets declared official doctrine. Uh, the concept of purgatory, this intermediate waiting place on the way to heaven, arrives in the 4th century. And as I referred to earlier, um, by the year 367, really, you can see on the left there, we've, we've got the first complete list of New Testament books as we know them at the moment. So some of the books that have been, uh, like the Apocalypse of, of Peter, for example, Shepherd of Hermes, that have been considered for possible inclusion are now left off. Okay, so, question. We're getting close to breaking for our groups. Where is the authority at the end of the early church period? The church really now is, is centred on, on Rome at the end of this... So we're talking about really round terms 500 or so. So Rome is preeminent in church affairs. Definitely the church is a hierarchy. Um, that model that we saw early on at the end of the first century, the charismatic style model where we're open to the authority of wandering and itinerant um, preachers and prophets, etc., that's, that's gone. Uh, anyone who looks like that now is, is immediately suspect. If you're not an ordained clergy person, that, that you know, they can trace where you've come from, you're suspect. 
um, and there's this uh, clear divide between the two. Um, and interestingly, um, everybody who's not ordained, uh, the laity has to approach God indirectly. And again, I, I think this is, uh, is socially constructed largely. Quick question. Um, who's got Malcolm Turnbull's phone number on speed dial? Or Julie Bishop's? Or Bill Shorten's? I'm trying to be sort of bipartisan here. Um, okay. So here's, here's the thing. If you wanted to, let's say one of your relatives gets trapped overseas in a horrible situation and you need some political interference on their behalf, what would you have to do to get to the highest level? You'd have to work your network, right? You'd have to... Email. What would you do? Email. Email. Would that be the best way of getting through? Would they... Would it? Yes. Oh, there you go. Okay. Well, I, I went to high school with someone who is an old drinking buddy of Julie Bishop's. So I'd, I'd call Dario to get hold of Julie Bishop. Okay. The point is, though, I can't call Julie Bishop or Bill Shaw. I don't know them, right? I haven't got any leverage with them. So... Back in those, those societies, the average person had no leverage with the king or the emperor. Didn't have them on speed dial, as it were. Okay? Um, so you'd have to go through the layers. So what they tended to do was to go through the saints. Mary, of course, was a favourite. Do you remember that, you know, that first miracle in John's Gospel? Which was the water into wine? Okay. Seems like Jesus wasn't all that keen initially. But of course, all good Jewish boys do what their mum says. She's there. Well, if all you have to do is get Mary on speed dial, I say, hey, look, can you have a chat to Jesus for me? Yeah? Um, so this whole idea develops. That you, it's, you can't go to God directly. You have to go through other people who are holier than you. Because why would God listen to you? That's the idea. Um, okay, we've said this next bit. Anyone who tries to preach is a heretic in the of clergy. The other interesting thing, of course, by this stage is that the only Bible that is, is available is in Latin. It's called the Vulgate. And so the average person, as we go through what's often called the Dark Ages, one of the downsides of the fall of Rome is uh, illiteracy rises. Less people can read and write. And those who can read and write will read and write in their local French or German or English or whatever, not Latin. So the Bible becomes more and more of a closed book. So that's where we, we are at the end of the early church period. I'm going to uh, wrap up now and allow you to, Matt, I think we'll take charge and divide you into, into the groups to look at some of the discussion questions. I'll be hovering in the background. Um, if you want to ask any questions, um, then please feel free. Um, but over to you, Matt.